I know about Nazis living in the States. I'm one of a few Jews in Congress, an institution built for white skin and blue blood. A long time I've been searching for a way to bring these people to justice. I think my search is over. Well, listen, I didn't set out to hunt fucking Nazis. I was following a case, tracking a murderer. And there are men in the halls of these institutions who are complicit, who have aided and abetted war criminals. That is the fight that I need to take. That's a fight you'll lose. I'm offering you another path. To hunt the monsters themselves. To create a task force to locate and prosecute Nazis in the U.S. and abroad. What you just heard was a clip from the Amazon original series Hunters that introduces a character named Elizabeth Handelman, who's inspired by the real-life congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman. So Hunters takes place in 1977. In 1978, Holtzman helped pass legislation that led to the establishment of the Office of Special Investigations, or OSI, a team within the United States Department of Justice created to investigate and prosecute Nazi war criminals who had immigrated to the United States. In our last episode, we talked about Werner von Braun and the use of concentration camp labor at the factory where the V-2 rocket was made. There's a lot of questions about the degree of von Braun's culpability, like how much did he know about the abuse of these workers? What could he have done to stop it? In this episode of Paperclip, we'll talk about Arthur Rudolph, who witnessed firsthand these horrendous crimes against humanity. Rudolf was a member of Werner von Braun's V-2 rocket team in Nazi Germany. He was also one of the engineers von Braun brought with him to America through Paperclip. But in 1984, Rudolf's Nazi past caught up with him and was made public. What happened next could be described as a national and even international firestorm. But in many ways, it was the people of Huntsville, Alabama, who felt it the most. This is Paperclip, a podcast series funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. I'm Michael Ian Black, comedian, writer, history buff, here with my co-host, Dr. Monique Laney, who knows a ton about all of this. Hi, Monique. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I should say you are a history professor at Auburn University with a focus on the history of technology and the author of German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, which in part covers the Rudolph case and Huntsville's reaction to it. A little later in the episode, Monique and I will also talk to Neil Scher, the former head of the OSI, yes, you heard that right, who actually worked on the Arthur Rudolph case. Monique, in addition to having studied so much about the Rudolph case, you live in Alabama, uh, and you're familiar with Huntsville, where much of this story takes place. I live in Alabama now. At the time when I was doing the research, I didn't live here. But I have family here, and um, yeah, very familiar with the area. Can you tell us who Arthur Rudolph was? 
Arthur Rudolph was an important member of the rocket team in Germany, as well as then later in the United States. He was the production manager for the V2 rocket, and then in the U.S. was the production manager or project manager for the Saturn V rocket that we talked about in the last episode, I think. So his job was basically the physical implementation of Werner von Braun's designs. Is that correct? That's how I understand it, yeah. So what was his relationship with von Braun in Germany? They were close associates, so they would have been in communication regularly, especially since Rudolf was at a fairly high level. Was Rudolf a Nazi? Well, from what I know, he um, joined the party very early, I think 1931. He claimed he did that because he was at the time worried about finding a job, and he thought that might help him. You know, everybody had to explain why they had joined and when and all that sort of thing when they came here. So von Braun was running this big rocketeering program at Pinamunda, and Rudolf would have been one of the top guys who was working for him. Uh, but not just Pinamunda, because after the Pinamunda facility was bombed, they moved inland to create an underground facility at Middelwerk and set up a concentration camp called Dura to make sure that they had enough workers to build those tunnels. Rudolf, by extension, would have been, if not in charge of that slave labor, then certainly instrumental in making sure that those workers helped. So do we know if von Braun lobbied for Rudolf to be included in the paperclip team? If you think about you know, von Braun wanting to recreate as best he could what they had done in uh, Penamunda, then having the production manager there would have made good sense. Von Braun, in trying to recreate this team that he had in Germany, was not only bringing the good, but he was knowingly bringing the bad because he knew Rudolf was basically running this slave labor to make sure that he got these tunnels built. Is that right? Yeah, I think you could assume that, that he knew quite well since he saw what the conditions were. Do we know what Rudolf specifically did that could be considered a war crime when he was operating this plant? So the allegations against him were that he would have been privy to the things that were happening under his command. He would have seen hangings. He might have actually reported people for sabotage. You have to listen closely to the interviews with him and how he framed things in order to get at the mindset behind it and, and be able to understand better why he was considered a war criminal by the Office of Special Investigations. So let's actually listen to an audio recording of Arthur Rudolph. This was taken during his interrogation by the Office of Special Investigations in 1982. Turn to the next page, Mr. Rudolph. You'll see pictures of the prisoners who worked in Middleburg when they were liberated by the Allies. Do those people look like they uh, were working under good uh, conditions? No, certainly not. Well, Mark, this is GX-8. Certainly not. You know, the figures are that nearly 20,000 people died during a service at this facility. That was hard to hear, I know, so I'm going to read from the transcript. This is Rudolph and the attorney who was interrogating him. 
The attorney speaks first and says, Turn to the next page, Mr. Rudolph. You'll see pictures of prisoners in Middlewerk when they were liberated by the Allies. Do those people look like they were working under good conditions? To which Rudolph replies, No, certainly not. The attorney then follows up with, You know, nearly 20,000 people died during service at this facility. Does that surprise you? You knew people were dying? And Rudolph simply says, Oh, yeah. But basically, this was Rudolph admitting, and to me, it sounds like he's admitting it in a very nonchalant way, that he knew these workers were dying of starvation and maltreatment. Monique, how did the Arthur Rudolph case come to light? You know, he had already moved away from Huntsville. He had left NASA just before the moon landings, by the way, which strikes everybody as odd. My understanding is it had to do with health issues. He moved out to California, he and his wife, to live close to their daughter. And so when he was approached by the OSI, he didn't tell anybody about it. He didn't reach out to people in Huntsville and say, hey, this is going on. I mean, my suspicion is he didn't really think this was going to be a problem. He really thought, I have been looked at upside down three times over, you know, I mean, what... It's not like the people don't know <laughs> what I've been doing or who I am. So the news actually doesn't hit Huntsville until Rudolph is already gone. Seriously? I think he might have talked to one person, but it didn't spread. It didn't become knowledge amongst the Huntsville group until it showed up in the newspapers. And they read about it. Like they were reading in the newspapers that Arthur Rudolph left the country and admitted to war crimes. So now's a good time to bring Neil Sharon to this. Neil was actually there, was actually uh, part of the investigation into Arthur Rudolph, and he can help us all understand and unpack what was going on. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for being a part of this. What was the Office of Special Investigations, and how did it come about? The Office of Special Investigations within the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, referred to as OSI, was created in 1979, principally through the efforts of then-Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman from uh, New York. There had been stories circulating for a long time that residing in the U.S. were many people who had been Nazi criminals and who had unlawfully uh, migrated to the United States. Liz was genuinely outraged that they were living here, and I think she was outraged that no serious effort had been undertaken by the authorities ever to do something about it. So I read that a substantial movement of people recognized war criminals in the streets and tried on their own to do something about it and didn't get anywhere with it. And that's why they approached Liz Holtzman and essentially saw in her an advocate who could help them get these people. Yeah, I I have a recollection that at around the time Liz got into it, there, there were people who made noise, but it didn't really uh, get traction. It, it became, I think, clear to the to the Justice Department and, and, and the powers that be in Washington that Liz Holtzman was not going away. And I joined the office really when it first began. And what was your background? I mean, I knew quite a bit about uh, the Holocaust and the Nazi crimes, but I was fascinated from a legal perspective. I read Nuremberg trial transcripts. I read legal briefs, uh, 
And so when I got the call, I realized that I couldn't turn it down. Hmm. I had no idea what it would lead to, but I didn't want to wake up in some hotel room somewhere in the middle of some trial wondering whether I had done the right thing by not taking that position. Where did where does your personal interest in this stem from? Well, I, I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. My parents are not survivors. My father was a uh, combat veteran of World War II. Uh, and I, frankly, when I was at college, I read quite a few books about it. But, you know, and then when I went on to law school, uh, people ask you, what do you want to do? And people will say, well, I want to do uh, trial work or securities law. No one ever said I want to track down Nazi war criminals. It's uh, <laughs> No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, that's, that's, an, un- that's an unusual An unusual thing. Goal. And that's how it happened. It came out of nowhere. And what I thought would last for two years lasted for about 15. Wow. Um, Initially, when you began your work as a trial attorney there, did you have a list of targets and was Arthur Rudolph on that list? There were a whole list of cases when we had to determine, was there evidence? And if not, where could we go to get them? Was Arthur Rudolph on that list? Was there an active file? And the answer was no. So how did the investigation into Rudolph start? What prompted it? Eli Rosenbaum, while he was still at law school, Eli later became my deputy, had uh, read a book about the Dora concentration camp. And it talked about how inmates from the camps were used to build the V-2 rockets, the rockets that Arthur Rudolph uh, was the operations director for to build them at, at uh, this site called Middleberg. And Rosenbaum noted a number of things, the conditions under which these concentration camp inmates worked were horrific, inhumane, and caused thousands upon thousands of deaths. And he also noted uh, there were stories about how the Nazis, both the civilians and the SS and the army, who manned that camp, how they were enjoying fancy Christmas dinners in the warmth of their facilities while the inmates were starving and freezing outside. So that was the initial trigger, but it took a considerable amount of investigative uh, and historical research on the part of our office to move that case forward. I have talked to Eli, and uh, he told me when he brought this case to you, that your reaction was, well, good luck, but those are the good Nazis. As in, you're not going to have any luck going after the rocket, anybody from that that particular group. Do you recall that? Uh, no, I don't recall saying it. You know, obviously this case was a bit different. Rudolph, he had been brought in by the United States government. Uh, they finagled his file to allow him to participate in the paperclip program. But Was there any opposition in terms of going after Rudolph? No opposition from the higher-ups. We ran the case, Rosenbaum and I, and eventually we, uh, you know, we struck a deal where he confessed to what he had done and agreed to leave the country and give up his uh, citizenship. So we never filed the case. We, we had enough evidence to file it. But I didn't get any, any pushback from within the government. Hmm. Outside, people like Pat Buchanan, who criticized everything we did, he wrote nasty columns about my office and about me. Uh, Hairy-chested Nazi hunters was, I think, the phrase that he used. How did you gather evidence against Rudolph, and what was that evidence? 
well, the first thing you know what we had to do was to get his immigration file and get other files that were contained within the U.S. government, the DOD, Department of Defense, uh, which would have been handling these uh, rocket scientists and other scientists who were brought into the country. We also did general research on how these camps were run, in particular, uh, the conditions under which the slave laborers were forced to build the V-2 rockets. And remember, Rudolph was high up. He was operations director of that whole program. What did that mean, operations director? Well, he was in charge. He had the job of making sure that they were produced, and he oversaw all aspects of it. Did you personally interview Rudolph? Yes, we interviewed him several times. What was he like, and how did he describe his work during the war? He would have been in his uh, mid-70s, I guess, when we went out to uh, California to uh, interrogate him. He was uh, very polite, very meticulous. He brought with him his immigration files, that he copies of which he had. Before the interview, I had sent him a letter basically saying, we're looking into your wartime activities, and we offered him the opportunity to give us his side of the stories. He was advised that he had a right to have counsel uh, with him. He chose not to, to have counsel. You know, I, in fairness, he was very gentlemanly. The interview was, was not a warm and fuzzy interview at all. He clearly relished talking about the scientific aspect of his work, how he developed the rockets, how they worked, the importance of it. He was obviously proud of the fact that he worked on the Saturn V project, which put a man on the moon. And, you know, the standards that we had to prove would be by clear and convincing evidence that these people were engaged in persecution of people because of their race, religion, national origin during the Nazi regime. And he admitted that he requisitioned slave laborers to work on his machinery. You know, at first he tried to... Uh, not admit it, but he admitted they worked under inhumane conditions. Suspected saboteurs were hanged in the facility, and on Rudolph's orders, all of the workers were required to, to view that. Obviously, it was an intimidation. Besides being uh, gruesome, people died of malnutrition, of overwork. They were beaten, and they couldn't deny his role. And there were documents that came to light that actually after he had visited a different concentration camp, that he said, you know, this could work very well at my camp, at Middleburg. And he was told, well, go ahead, work with the commandant of, that, of the camp and get your slave laborers. So we knew we had a case after the interrogation. It was certainly different than most interrogations. How is it different? Well, different just in the fact that obviously you're dealing with a highly educated, intelligent individual, he, uh, different in the sense also that he was brought into the uh, United States by the U.S. government under Project Paperclip. But in my mind, he bore a, an even greater sense of culpability because he was intelligent. You know, he joined the Nazi party early on, and he was an ardent Nazi. There's no question about it. And while Rosenbaum and I were looking at an elderly gentleman 
who was very courtly, I would say, and respectful to us. But uh, we knew that we were dealing with somebody who was up to his eyeballs in mass murder and persecution and the tormenting of innocent civilian slave laborers. Did he express any remorse or regret for uh, those actions? No. In fact, I think it's fair to say that throughout my experience at OSI, 14, 15 years, investigating and interrogating scores and scores of these people, there was no remorse. The only misgivings they had was the fact that they got caught and uncovered and exposed. Let's take a quick break to hear from Jerrica Hinton, who stars as FBI agent Millie Morris in the Amazon original drama series, Hunters. After a murder investigation leads Millie to discover the inner workings of Operation Paperclip, she must reconcile her need for justice with the Hunter's quest for vengeance. Here's what Jerrica had to say about this topic when asked about it in a previous interview. Millie is someone who believes in institutions. She's dedicated her life to working for the government. She's a devout Catholic. She believes in making choices that matter. And at the same time, she is a part of a world that in a variety of ways is telling her that she doesn't belong and that all of these values that she holds are fantasy. And so she's the kind of woman that is very smart (laughs) and very hungry and motivated and believes in order and sacrifice, but all of that seems to be at odds with what she's seeing on a day-to-day basis. She goes from understanding the quest for justice in a very clean cut, um, there are good choices you can make and bad choices you can make, and it is your personal integrity that will always lead you towards the good. She goes from carrying that, for lack of a better word, simplistic point of view, into allowing a more complicated understanding of the world into herself. Now let's get back to Paperclip. Neil, you know, you used a term that I have seen repeatedly, I've heard repeatedly, but I, since I wasn't there, I, it's very hard for me to decipher what makes someone an ardent Nazi. What are the things that I'm weighing here to consider someone ardent versus somewhere else on the scale? That term was actually originally written in the file that the army had on him, that he was of the type, that he was dedicated and dangerous and a national security risk. And in fact, the paperclip program under which Rudolph was brought in, under President Truman's directive, dedicated Nazis and national security risks were not to participate in the program. And what happened was, because the the original file described him in such a way that he should not have been a participant in the program, but obviously that file was sanitized, as were others. And he came in. In fact, his file said he was 100% Nazi, dangerous type, and a security threat. And this was the initial determination of the people who first reviewed his files and his background. And then somehow the file was changed and he was allowed to come in in contravention of the president's directives. Who changed the file? 
I, I don't know. Obviously, people wanted him in the program. Remember, this was the beginning of the Cold War. The Soviets uh, turned overnight from our ally to our enemy. And getting the scientists was something that uh, we wanted to do. Surely, the Soviets got a whole host of them and used them and probably worked them under conditions far different than the conditions under which Rudolf and Word of Von Braun and their compatriots worked down in Alabama. I'm uh, sensing that you had really strong emotions about Rudolph. And it sounds like his punishment didn't necessarily fit the crime. Were you satisfied with the outcome? No one could look at any of these cases and not feel something. But we recognize that our sense of outrage had to be tempered by the fact that we were lawyers, prosecutors. And unless we could make the case in court, it would go nowhere. I headed the team that prosecuted our first case. We didn't know how a judge would react. We took evidence from all over the world and we put historians on the stand. And we knew this was new ground. Case of, of Rudolph, his admissions were critical. And after the interrogations, he got a lawyer with whom we shared some of the evidence. Uh, he knew what his client had admitted to. And I advised his lawyer that we were prepared to move forward to file a case seeking to strip him of his citizenship. And then he decided not to challenge it. I think he did not want the attendant publicity, which undoubtedly would have been very heavy. And so he agreed to leave the country and give up his citizenship. You asked whether the punishment fit the crime. It's a valid question, uh, which I had been asked many times over the years. Considering what these people were involved in, it's hard to figure any real punishment that would fit the crime because they were, they were so enormous. In terms of Rudolph, through the, the agreement and the admissions, we succeeded in achieving everything we could have achieved had we gone through years of vigorous litigation. As a layperson, I have no understanding, other than what I see on TV, of the law. But it strikes me that he's a U.S. citizen who committed crimes. Was there no possibility of imprisonment as a sentence? And if not, why not? Yeah. Not in the United States. We had no jurisdiction over that. Because the crimes were committed in Germany, even though he's now an American citizen? Yeah. I mean, look, if the Germans wanted to, but they had no interest and no political will to prosecute, certainly Rudolph, but up until recently, they had no political will to prosecute anybody. I fought with them for decades to take back people we were deporting for crimes they committed in the name of Germany, in the name of German people, and they did nothing. And even more scandalous, our Department of State refused to back us up and refused to put pressure on Germany to take these people back. Only in the last several years, they've taken back some concentration camp guards who are well into their 90s. They always had the authority to do it but they chose not to. Very simple. You've spoken pretty passionately about your own personal interest in this as a Jewish American and as a government uh, agent. Did you feel like there was any sense of 
trying to make right what had been made wrong by Project Paperclip? Well, I don't know whether I thought about it in those terms, but I understand completely the sentiment that you're talking about. And yeah, if you look at the history of what happened post-war, there were a lot of wrongs committed, Project Paperclip being part of it. I think it's fair to say that the people working at OSI, lawyers, historians, investigators, I mean, first and foremost, we understood what our mission was. And no matter how righteous anybody might have felt and how much we thought we were righting the wrongs of the past, if we didn't put on a solid case and we lost in court, it would all be for naught. So we understood that. But uh, I think we all understood that this was an office that had a special uh, historical importance. You know, we were all very proud to have uh, uh, to have been part of it. Thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with Monique and I, and really uh, shining some new light, especially on the case of Arthur Rudolph. Uh, really appreciate it. The whole the whole thing is uh, fascinating. Monique, how did you become interested in this subject? Initially, the way this came about was I was in graduate school and I was interested in immigration history, and uh, but I was also very interested in post-war German national identity. So I grew up in Germany. My dad was a GI stationed in the U- in, in Germany um, in the late sixties. I won't get more any more specific than that. And uh, obviously, met my mother. He was a spy. I got it. Yeah, okay, we understand. He was a spy. <laughs> No, I was talking about my age, really, but okay. okay. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Anyway, so he meets my mother. They get married and they move to the United States. I'm born before they moved, but essentially I grow up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama until I'm uh, seven and they get divorced. My mother and I move to Germany. So I grew up as a basically with American background, but a German child, right? I grew up uh as a German in the German system. I grew up with all the ideas around Germany's past and something we call Vergangenheitsbewältigung. It's a term that anybody in Germany knows what you're talking about and and associates a lot of baggage with. It's essentially uh, uh, means dealing, coping, grappling with the past. And it's very specific to the Nazi past. Can you say that word again? Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Okay, I got it. Got yeah, it, I got yeah, it. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> One of those long German words. I make my students try to say that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up with that. Think of it as the second generation after the war. They come of age and they start looking at their parents who were involved, obviously, or lived through, let's put it that way, through uh, the Nazi period. And they say, what were you doing? They didn't get a lot of answers. <laughs> so out of that grew this, this sense that the nation itself needs to apologize and needs to basically get on its knees and beg forgiveness. It sounds extreme, but essentially that's an understanding that started to develop over time. If they ever wanted to be accepted again, that is what they had to do. It's also a very personal thing for every family in Germany. So I know my grandfather was a party member, for example, and trying to wrap your head around that at the same time... Wait, you're saying your grandfather was? Yes, my German oh, grandfather. When you said your father met your mother, I understood that to mean that your mother was also American and maybe living on a base, but your mother was German. Yes. And her father was an, was a, 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 a party member. Yes. Ah. And do you know what he did during the war? Did you have that conversation with him? 
Unfortunately, he died before I was old enough to have those kind of conversations. The only thing I know is that, you know, he was following the war on a map and like watching the troop, you know, moving pins on the map, essentially, Mm -hmm. and probably was ideologically also a supporter for some things. I don't know how far that went. So this story for you, I mean, when you said you were interested in post-World War II German identity and immigration, that's in some sense, your story. But then your father also has additional connections to the paperclip people, correct? Yes. So my dad actually remarried, and it just so happens that he married um, a daughter of one of the paperclippers who grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Her sister uh, moved back to Huntsville and started bringing back together basically the group, the second generation as well as those who were still around in the first generation. And she kept inviting me to come to that. Now, this is my step-aunt. At first, I wasn't interested, but then once I realized who they were, what the group was, I thought that was interesting enough to (laughs) investigate a little bit. Yeah. I had no idea about this history when I started. I really didn't. And that's sad, but I didn't. And so I really came to it naively, and I heard all these stories about how they came to the United States. And, and, and the more I looked into that, the more interesting it became, but also the more thorny it became, right? Mm-hmm. When you met these paper clippers for the first time, what struck you about them? I, f- I thought it was interesting how their stories sounded like adventures. And it sounded like a fascinating path for immigrants to take, right? And how their lives changed completely. And then, it kind of varied to the first generation. Some of their older people, right? We're talking, they were in their their 70s, 80s, and 90s when I was talking to them. And um, some of them are absolutely charming and had really good explanations for who they were and how they had come here. And, and when you try to put that together with what you know about them, what they were part of, and you're trying to somehow piece that together, that can be very distracting and difficult. The idea that you're sitting down with somebody who you know was a part of something atrocious, but you can view them in that moment as an individual and as somebody who is utterly human at the same time. And how do you wrap your head around that disparity? And I can imagine that would be difficult. And I, I, don't know, I don't know that I could do it. Did you find that they were generally honest? Uh, honest about what? What their position was and whether they tried to downplay it or change it or mitigate it when they recalled their own history to you. So I think they themselves believed that they were honest. Mm-hmm. As honest as they might ever be to themselves even. One thing that worked in my favor was that I was German myself. They thought of me as someone who would understand where they're coming from better than maybe somebody else. They also had rehearsed stories, right? I mean, clearly they had been asked, some of them had been asked these questions before, and they were telling the same stories over and over again. Honesty, I got actually more from listening to the second generation tell me about the first generation. Oh, interesting. So sometimes the children, yeah, so sometimes the children would tell me what they thought was going on. Did any of them express any regret or culpability for their actions during the war? No. The general stance from the first generation was always, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything any other person wouldn't have done in the same situation. And the stance was, you have no idea what it's like to live under a totalitarian system. Right. 
So you also, essentially, you don't have any right to judge us. The only time I ever heard some grappling with that was in the second generation. The kids really had maybe a similar experience to mine in the sense of realizing how big this was, especially when they started looking around them. They were growing up in a, in a, in a very racist society, Huntsville, Alabama, you know, in the 50s and 60s. You, you could imagine. They are white. They're trying to fit in, essentially. They're trying to be part of the culture there. And it's only later in their lives when, they, when some of them look back and go, oh, my goodness. Right? And some of them actually saw that there is a connection between what their parents had lived through in Germany and what they had experienced and seen and been part of. You know, similar thing, not the same thing, similar thing in Alabama. It's a fascinating story for a whole host of reasons. It's a really interesting prism through which we can sort of view a lot of the American experience. Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Amazon Studios or the LA Times. 